Business Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor Kate Kenny. Kate is Professor of Business and Society at National University of Ireland in Galway. She has held research fellowships at the Edmund J. Safra Lab at Harvard University and Cambridge's Judge Business School. Her research focuses on organization studies, specifically political and psychosocial approaches. She has researched whistleblowing in organizations since 2010, along with numerous articles in peer-reviewed journals on this topic. Professor Kenny has published two books on whistleblowing, Whistleblowing Toward a New Theory, published by Harvard University Press, and The Whistleblowing Guide, published by Wiley Business in 2019. Professor Kenny has written and contributed to articles in the Financial Times, the Irish Times, The Guardian, and many others. Her work has been cited in the UK House of Commons, in Ireland's Parliament, and in policy documents at EU level. Kate, you are very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, maybe we'll start by addressing what, what is perhaps a simple question, but possibly also a complex question as a consequence. What is whistleblowing? Everyone has their own idea of probably what whistleblowing is and maybe some people that they have read about spring to mind. Um, the typical definition that we use, people who study this area or even people who are activists in this area, uh, is this one. So whistleblowing is a disclosure by an organisational member, either former member or current member, of illegal, immoral or illegitimate practices, basically wrongdoing that they perceive, under the control of their employer. So this disclosure goes to people who can affect action. So the idea is perceived wrongdoing by somebody working for the organisation or has worked uh, and it's disclosed to somebody who can stop it. That's basically what whistleblowing is. And I'm conscious that when you were describing it there, you used the word organisation. Typically, when I think of whistleblowing, I think of, say, public sectors so of governmental bodies. But is whistleblowing something that applies to both public and private or commercial organisations? Yes, public, private, third sector. I mean, uh, all of these organisations. We can't overlook charities. You know, these are areas that are often less well regulated. So really any organisation and uh, different sectors have different cultures different flavors that makes the whistleblowing look a little different depending on the context but yeah for sure um, it can happen in any organization where i suppose wrongdoing goes on yeah you you said there you use the word wrongdoing and 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 obviously well presumably no one likes to see wrongdoing uh, happening in in an organization they work for so does that underpin why people become whistleblowers that they're that they maybe they're frustrated at that seeing that wrongdoing or they're seeing something which is wrong and against against the laws against the regulations yeah i mean there's lots of different reasons why people might speak up like we're in the middle of i'm speaking to you now we're in the middle of the covid 19 pandemic depending on where you are in the world um is the different levels of lockdown but I mean even the last 12 months we've seen so many different examples of reasons why people would speak up you know remember at the start there was a lot of if you look at the UK for example um, and other countries uh, there was a lot of disclosures around look we, we don't have enough PPE and people were speaking up doctors and nurses in fact the editor of the UK medical journal The Lancet 
uh, came forward and saying, you know, people are being silenced. They're being warned not to talk about this. Um, actually, the original doctor who spoke out first uh, in China about this new virus that seemed to be transmitted to humans, not just animals, last January um, was punished quite severely for speaking up. I think it was on social media. Uh, that person since sadly passed away from the virus. So you know, lots of different reasons people speak out and we've seen lots of examples of it just in the last year. But, um, you know, we tend not to focus too much on the motivation piece. There's a whole reason why we don't. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, the last 30 years when people are designing laws central to a lot of laws that protect whistleblowing. So there's laws in different countries that if somebody is classed as a whistleblower, they came forward about wrongdoing, they're protected against retaliation. But central to those laws initially was the motivation question. So a person would have to kind of pass a test in court to show that they acted only in good faith so that their motivation was pure. And this turned out to be a really difficult part of the early legislation. Why? Well, because when we work for organisations, there's lots of different reasons why a person's motivation might be called into question. If you think about it, if you've had an argument with a colleague once or I don't know, you once went home with a box of paper clips or whatever it might be. All of those things were being used to sort of question the character of the whistleblower. So anyway, for that reason, motivation is kind of not a big question anymore. The issue of why people blow the, the whistle, it's more we want to focus on what are they talking about? What is the issue that the organisation is doing that this person is trying to highlight? Have they been retaliated against for speaking out? And if they have, how can we protect them? These are the key things we want to focus on. Well, if we if we perhaps flip that about, is it then more useful to think about why people don't whistleblow? If that kind of purity test, for want of a better term, is taken out of the equation, yes. wh why wouldn't someone whistleblow if, if there is an egregious wrong or wrongdoing evidently happening? Well, I mean, any of us who work and who've maybe spent some time in an organisation or, or and a profession, you know, if we reflect, these things are powerful entities. They have a tight grip on our psyche. Even the most independent minded of us, we don't escape those kind of cultural pulls, psychic pulls as easily as we might think. And I think, Lawrence, the area you work in, um, which focuses on sort of psychological aspects uh, of work and organisations to a certain extent, this sheds light, tells us a good bit about why that is. Um, organisations are complex places. Organisations are great because they can enable us to do uh, tasks at scale by lots of people working together in a coordinated manner. I mean, that's the basic idea of the organisation, super stuff. However, because of that complexity, it's necessary that organisations create things like hierarchies and roles and all these elements of the structure. And within that, there's a lot of scope for anxiety for the people working there. For a hierarchy to work, you need to kind of create responsibilities for people in particular jobs. We've all been there where you're responsible for a task, but you're not really given maybe enough power or um, enough leverage to make sure the task is done. There's often a lot of distance between people in the hierarchies. Think about a subordinate trying to report to their manager, but feeling, oh, I don't know if I can speak up to this individual. And all of those things kind of can make organisations quite anxious places. Now, when we have anxiety like that, it's often a case that 
our own sense of self becomes tied up in the organisation. So we see ourselves as very strongly belonging to an organisation or very strongly belonging to a profession. And we've all met people where that's really quite heightened. So people who you know, over identify with the job they do or the organisation that they do. And then you get this kind of confusion between, well, you know, the self and the organisation. What that means is when somebody comes along that might be seen as a threat to that kind of strong sense of self tied up in the organisation. For example, a whistleblower who's trying to speak out about wrongdoing that might be quite central to the organisation and what they do, then this is seen as a threat. This is definitely seen as something to defend against because you're not just defending your organisation, now you're defending your sense of self. And that's why reprisals can be quite visceral. And it's also what, to your point, tends to encourage people to say nothing and to, to, to say silent because the norms of, of loyalty and the norms of complicity can be quite strong, quite powerful. Not for everybody, but it definitely is. And I think we tend to underestimate the degree to which we identify um, with the places we work, the professions we're in, our sense of self as a, as a career person, for example. Interesting perspectives there. How do we, how do we then distinguish whistleblowing from perhaps you know venting or or possibly even uh, at a more cynical remove leaking uh, where, where someone might have other motives beyond and i know we, you said we shouldn't question the motives but how do we how do we distinguish between those different factors yeah i mean so leaking tends to be sort of the sharing anonymously of information that's not sort of tied to the individual uh, maybe putting it out on the public forum uh, sometimes strategically, you know, we see this a lot of maybe in politics, interacting with the media, strategically revealing information uh, in that kind of leaking fashion. Whereas whistleblowing, it tends to be um, not always, but it tends to be quite clear with the information that is disclosed, who this is coming from, maybe their rank in the organisation. And with that, then the legitimacy of the information is kind of more robust, because if I know something's coming from a middle manager uh, with experience in this area and they've tied that to the information, then it tends to be taken a little bit more seriously. In terms of whistleblowing as venting, I'm guessing would would I be right in saying you would be kind of a disgruntled employee idea that you'd be talking about there? Because certainly that's sometimes how whistleblowing might be perceived, I would say wrongly, in the press. No, that's absolutely it. If someone yeah. is, you know, just that uh, maybe they feel they've been overlooked for a promotion and they've served their years and they deserve it and they haven't got it or that kind of situation. For sure. And certainly um, one of the things that we sometimes see if... A uh, person speaks out about wrongdoing and they're the target of a sort of a smear campaign often authored by the organisation. And, you know, this doesn't happen at all in every case. I just want to stress this is a small minority. But when it does, it's quite serious. In those kind of cases, we often get that sort of caricature. Oh, well, this person, you know, they are just disgruntled and they were um, overlooked. And then they came forward with this idea. And the, the, the aim is to kind of delegitimize or play down what that individual is saying. It's quite a common tactic. Uh, you, I can think of a number of different areas. And it's certainly when, when people think about whistleblowing, they do often ask about that. Well, this disgruntled, I, I presented at the um, Irish Oireachtas, which is the Irish kind of parliament. And this was one of the questions that politicians came up with. And they were kind of saying, this is, this is a concern for us. I think though, anyone working in this space, so, if I spoke up about wrongdoing in an organisation and I named somebody involved 
or I make claims about my organisation. In doing so, I put myself at such risk of being labelled a whistleblower and all the negative reprisals that can come with that. And also, if you do, especially say in Ireland, the UK and people with similar kind of legal systems, if you do speak up about somebody incorrectly in that way and accuse people of wrongdoing, you're so open to libel, defamation, to all the other aspects of law that are aimed to shut down that kind of uh, frivolous or um, aggressive and uh, incorrectly so speech, if you like, that um, that it doesn't, you know, the, the percentage of people that would actually go there uh, from that perspective of, um, you know, vindictive or seeking revenge is, is really, really small because you could spend five minutes on Google to work out that this is not a good strategy to get your revenge on your organization or someone who's annoyed you. You've put yourself in such jeopardy, uh, all the things that could go wrong. So I think that this is definitely something that comes up, but in reality doesn't tend to be a major problem. Okay. And you touched upon issues there of smearing and touched upon some of the issues related to, um, you know the the impacts on, on people from from whistleblowing but but i guess if we were to dig into that a little bit further you know undoubtedly there there are some pretty heavy consequences for for people both on a personal and potentially professional level of whistleblowing is that a fair assessment yes well so what we do know is that most situations when someone speaks out about wrongdoing are fine in 80% of cases, you'll just maybe get a pat on the back and say, oh, well done, you've alerted us to this issue and now the organisation can sort it out. Thanks very much. So it's a good thing. Um, or else it's benign. Nothing really happens. Now, in around 20% of cases, however, there's some sort of reprisal for speaking out. And this research from, from Australia, actually, uh, Ireland, England, uh, sorry, the UK, the US, that all sort of all falls around that sort of percentage, about 20% of people. When that occurs, the reprisals can be, you know, relatively minor to fairly, fairly major. So things like being given very menial tasks to do. You might be cut off from the computer system at work, for example. Um, you might be given a task to do that, you know, you used to do 10 years ago, very demeaning to be given uh, this responsibility and everyone knows about it uh, and it's a kind of there's various different ways um, that people can find themselves isolated colleagues can can sometimes turn against someone for speaking up for obvious reasons and then it can go to if it gets so bad that the individual is fired for speaking out or is often quite common as well that the place becomes kind of unbearable that they might go on sick leave and then might end up resigning just for their own peace of mind. And then the impacts can be quite difficult. We've carried out some research. Um, it's on our website, whistleblowingimpact.org, where we've surveyed over 100 people who spoke out and interviewed approximately 60 along with experts on this. And we've really tried to drill down onto those impacts. So, I mean, you know, given that someone will have worked in a particular career for so many years and they've developed a whole CV in that area. They've developed expertise and skills and network. And suddenly, if you are unfortunate enough to be what they call blacklisted, which means your name is out there as a whistleblower, maybe in your industry, 
um, people are aware that you've done this, it can be really detrimental uh, to someone's career. And if you don't get to work in the area for which you're trained, this has huge impacts um, on your own mental well-being, but also on your salary. If you think about it, um, you're back to square one. So what we tried to do in recent research was put a financial figure on that and actually through um, our survey, ask people to assess the costs of speaking out, the opportunity cost in terms of the uh, salaries that they would have lost, maybe pension entitlements, but also the financial costs of um, going through the process. And they can be quite stark, legal fees, um, fees for supports for health, including mental health, um, travel to meet advocates and uh, act, advocacy people who can who can support your claim. And then the time costs are huge as well. Something that I think not many people have researched. We were quite surprised to find that. I think it was 40% or so have spent over a thousand hours on their case because when they're maybe taking a court case or trying to defend themselves maybe against a case, it's often up to them to put together all of the information to learn about the laws, all these other aspects you might not have thought about at the start. So the impacts can be really quite, quite stark, quite significant. There's very little help out there for people, very little help uh, who find themselves in that situation too. You know, and I think there's there's reasons why, but from a society point of view, even though these people um, who speak out, I mean, have done so much uh, for all of us. We've seen it throughout the pandemic, for example. I don't need to tell you about the whistleblowers at Boeing, the whistleblowers at Tyrannus in the US, the BP oil spill. All of these huge disasters had people either trying to speak out or, or in some cases successfully doing something and had such clear benefits uh, for the rest of us and the fact that they go through all of these different um, impacts and their families do too is uh, it just seems hugely unfair and it was actually the families that I was going to come to uh, from yes, just listening yeah. to you talk obviously a lot about the individual and personal and that's absolutely vital but it, it strikes me that there must inevitably be an impact on relationships. There must inevitably be an impact potentially on, on children and, and if there are children in, in the family and, and, and their relationships, particularly if someone was living, as, as say is the case in Ireland, in many cases in, in small communities where everyone kind of knows everyone. So there, there must be some significant impacts in that regard as well. There, there really, really can be. I mean, you know, children are in school, you know what children are like if somebody... Um, is being teased for something their parents did. It's often lost on children in the schoolyard that this was in the public interest in the first place, obviously. Um, but then more material things, more practical things, like people said, oh, when I was interviewing different individuals, you know, I had to pull my kids out of the school they were in because we had to move uh, neighbourhoods to a, to a different smaller house. And so they lost their um, friendship networks. Um, the college fund is often pumped into, you know, how legal fees can escalate. Uh, all of those aspects and the impacts on people's relationships with significant others can be quite tough to deal with as well. That's why, um, you know, if anyone finds themselves in these kind of situations, I often point them towards, well, Brian Martin is a professor in Australia, actually, who's produced a whistleblower survival guide, which is very practical really really clear and the government accountability project in washington dc are another group and they also have survival tips if you like on their website and both 
really center on that point. Step number one, if you're going to go down this route, is to have that conversation with whoever your significant support person is, because if you're in it together, it can actually be really rewarding, not rewarding, that's the wrong word, but it can strengthen the relationship and it's a sort of us against whatever might be coming. But if they're not involved in the process from the start and in your thinking, uh, it can be kind of quite detrimental to the relationship. So you see both of those sorts of things playing out. If we perhaps flip it around then, what can be the organizational impacts of, of having whistleblowers in them? Because on the one hand, you could see that it should be a very positive thing that people are calling out um, wrong behavior and wrongdoing. Yet, is that always the case? So we've had a massive sea change in the last 20 years in terms of organizations position on this. Uh, it's been driven from the outside. So here's how it goes. You'll have a scandal and then you'll have a big flurry of political activity and that flurry of political activity will start with inquiries and the inquiries lead to reports and the reports call for change and the change is often we need stronger whistleblowing laws. So we had that after actually who recently passed away the Bernie Madoff scandal. We know there was a whistleblower, um, Harry Markopoulos, trying to come forward about that and, and not being listened to by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And after that, they brought in legislation in the US to enable whistleblowers and reward and support them who come forward. After Enron, we saw another flurry of legislation. Here in Ireland, we have very strong whistleblowing law, reasonably st strong, I should say, that came in in 2014, not directly related, but closely tied to a very well publicized whistleblower story about a guard, a policeman who had been trying to speak up around wrongdoing and wasn't allowed to do it. So we have those legislations following scandal. It's always a cycle. And then, you know, there's lobbying against them as well goes on. But the point that I'm trying to make is that with each of those sets of legislation, we uh, tend to see organizations mandated or required to implement speak up systems. So in some cases, organizations will address this because they have to. <laughs> That's the case right now in Ireland, for example, in the public sector. Australia has this. The European Directive on Whistleblowing is coming in next December and all private and public organizations with more than 50 employees are going to have to have these systems. So there's the have to have bit for organizations. But we're also seeing a huge um, push from the perspective of shareholders. So a good report here is the principles for responsible investment. They're an organization advising shareholders and shareholder activism about ethical issues. And more and more you're seeing calls by shareholders for companies to produce evidence that they're listening to whistleblowers, taking them seriously because Transparency is in some cases declining in terms of what oversight we have on what organizations are doing, particularly organizations working in very complex areas. You know, think of finance, think of tech as the processes that they use get more complex. It's more difficult from an outsider's perspective to see if there's wrongdoing going on. So we're always depending more and more on insiders and shareholders are wise to this and are kind of demanding a bit more transparency. So there's that pull push as well and i think the third aspect is there's increasing evidence that organizations that do pay attention to insiders initially in the initial stages when people are, are wanting to speak up that that's actually got a bottom line benefit it's kind of a forward risk identification advance 
signposting that something bad is coming down. I mean, if anyone was following the Wells Fargo scandal the last two years in the US, you had Warren Buffett saying, you know, this is ridiculous because it shouldn't have come to this. If I'd been in charge, I would have known that these people were speaking up about wrongdoing. Do these managers not listen to their staff uh, kind of thing? So the idea is that ordinary workers have information about disasters that are waiting to happen and you need to listen to them. So there's, there's some people have put stats on that, like the Association for Certified Fraud Examiners. You know, they assess that about one in every two, you know, half of every of, of all wrongdoing that is detected in the organizations they study it's an insider coming forward that is identifying this and so the european union put a figure of that the eu loses one billion a year or sorry one trillion a year to fraud so the the finances now are increasingly seen as key um, there's actually a study by two us academics uh, stubborn and welch and what they've done is assess the bottom line profitability of companies that do have whistleblowing detection and uh, and do enable people to come forward through whistleblowing channels and they show that it has a positive impact on the bottom line so almost there's money to be made from this so i think we have the legal push we have the shareholder push we have the money push but certainly you know whistleblowing is having a moment in many countries right now and so if 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 someone who is leading an organization is listening and thinking okay so what what should we do to encourage and protect whistleblowers is it about is it about the culture is it about you know leadership is it about processes what what should they be uh, thinking about yeah i mean this is really great I, and i if, if you were telling what's happening now is you know whenever you get a legal change you get a whole industry spark up around if it's a significant legal change so right now because of um, for example the laws changing in the us and that's been in place for a while but also the european union directive coming in next year we're having seeing huge numbers of well fairly large numbers of, of new uh, initiatives by firms selling whistleblowing systems to organizations, public and private sector. So, you know, we will install uh, an intranet and a speak up channel and da da da. And these are kind of being sold as off the shelf solutions, if you like. Um, so you're getting a bit of that. So I, what I would say, we, we did quite an extensive study and the book that you mentioned, The Whistleblowing Guide, is a result of, of our study into actually what makes these things work, because it's a very delicate situation if you want to be protecting and encouraging staff to come forward about wrongdoing. Think of the taboos involved. Think about the psychological difficulty um, or I won't say difficulty, but uh, how would you say challenges involved? Um, it's something that a, a good leader, a good CEO will think through um, in quite some depth. So processes that you mentioned are absolutely key. We have to understand that most people will try and speak up internally first. So actually, that's quite a relief for the CEO to know. And this is robust statistics. We know 80 to 90 percent of whistleblowers do not go first to the media or not even outside to the regulator. Most, most, most people will try and speak up um, initially to a line manager or a colleague or a senior manager. So the organization usually has the opportunity to catch the situation at that point. And so the question then is how best to do that. And culture is is really key because what you really want is for that disclosure to be made to a manager or to, to somebody trusted by the employee and dealt with 
and the only way to kind of ensure that is to have the kind of culture that um that people feel safe in coming forward. There's a very good study in our book, The Whistleblowing Guide, we refer to it um, by Mule Captain. It gives a nice uh, set of guidelines. It's it's really um, a checklist for a CEO to go through and it, it, it ticks through the different aspects of an organisation that, that make it easier to speak up. Little things like, you know, can we discuss issues around here? Is there major taboos in this organisation? How transparent are the different processes um for example if someone does something wrong are they sanctioned are they seen to be sanctioned these are really basic things but you need that in place for somebody to feel like um they are able to come forward and i think that's that's a key thing and really there's ways of examining that are good and uh, a culture that are good and ways that are not so good i think that the main thing that one wants to um, pay attention, if you want to be realistic about the culture in the organisation, the only way to do it is really to ask, ask people and uh, to have that kind of qualitative, I'll say qualitative just means interview or focus group, in-depth um, examination of what people feel the culture is, because that's really what will indicate whether or not they feel that they can come forward. So before there's any conversations about IT systems or, you know, obeying the law technically, that needs to happen. Because if it's not, I think one of the big dangers we've seen recently um, is that when whistleblowing laws mandate or require organisations to do certain things, they're often treated in a very tick box fashion. We saw that in the UK financial sector. So after the financial crisis, the Financial Conduct Authority, so that's their regulatory agency um, required all banks of a certain size, all financial institutions to implement whistleblowing systems. That was 2016, I believe. And then by 2018, 2019, we had the first evaluations. And what we found was 80% had systems in place. Great. So 80% had gone and bought the system and put it in. But what a little bit of di um, deeper digging found was that training wasn't always happening. Um, reporting wasn't happening, information gathering. So it has been treated like just a, an ordinary sort of tick box exercise. Put these things in place, we'll be grand. We can report back to the regulator that we've done it, but uh, without any real meaningful um, integration. And, uh, you know, this is really problematic for, can you imagine the person who's been tasked with taking whistleblowing disclosures? Imagine being that manager and you've just been subjected to one of those exercises and you're told you're the respondent now for whistleblowing disclosures from your colleagues for the whole organization you're not trained correctly there isn't enough resources given to you and what often happens is this is just a little bit of somebody's job it's maybe an add-on that you're supposed to do on top of your normal tasks it's a recipe for disaster and my heart really goes out to people ill often middle management who are tasked with this it really needs to be thought through and all the resources put in place for the people who are who are who are given that you know responsibility. No, absolutely. And as we finish up, are there any examples that you could point to of, of good or, or bad practice? Things that we you know people could look at and say that's the sort of thing we should emulate, or is it still very much developing? No, I mean there is great practice out there, and that's what we tried to do in the whistleblower whistleblowing guide we looked at um the international uh engineering organization and health and banking see so, you know who does well and what do they do so there's um you know 
to to realize to to be realistic about what's achievable is the first thing and to understand that this thing takes time so you may implement a system today and maybe or implement even a, a change in culture and you mightn't see results uh, for for a number of months, sometimes years, but that's OK because these things are very, very delicate. I think the other thing that we can't get past is that it, we need to be very realistic about the any um, paradoxes or any real barriers within the organisation to this, because if the organisation in question is working in a way that the day to day uh, behaviour and practice and the way it makes its money or the way it does its business um, is inherently problematic and has inherent uh, yeah, difficulties, then that's going to create issues around whistleblowing. So if we look at banking just before the crisis, for example, the very way in which banks were, were being run from a cultural point of view, which was to prioritise quantity over quality and to jeopardise um, safety and customer well-being, you know, those are such deep systemic issues and they are going to come up if you are implementing whistleblower and so whistleblowing guidelines and policies in the organization. So I think leaders need to be really realistic about is there something deeply wrong with what's with how business is being done, because no amount of sort of whistleblowing system is going to alleviate that. And you're just going to put a huge amount of pressure um, on the organization. So a lot of what we're talking about here is uh, is kind of not minor, but wrongdoing that it is possible to address within the organization anything larger than that is a different question um we're thinking about more wide-scale corruption okay professor kate kinney of uh, national university of ireland galway thank you very much for your time thank you very much for having me on Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.